Well, this summer, my uh, daughter, Jordan, joined a uh, swim team for uh, the first year. And the first couple of meets, uh, she didn't really realize that you were supposed to race. She liked practice. She liked playing with the other kids. She just didn't realize that you were supposed to go as fast as you could. So we pulled her aside and we said, Jordan, you know, you really need to go as fast as you can. And she said, okay, dad, I'll, I'll do that. Now she was one of the weaker swimmers. So they put them on relays, you know, like if you're a good swimmer, you get on the individual meets. If you're not so good, they put you on a relay, hoping that the others will make you look better than what you actually are. And so Jordan was on the relay and she loved being on the team. But then the day came in which she was able to swim an individual meet. It was the 25 freestyle and she came in second place. And after that, her mom's competitive spirit got into her and uh, possessed her a little bit to the point where uh, she wanted to win the blue every time she went out and swam. Well, the last meet of the year was the conference meet, and this is where all the different local swim, uh, summer swim clubs come together and they have a meet. And she was in a couple relays, but she was in the individual 25-meter backstroke. She was in one of the slowest heats, because they had 25 kids, and she was in one of the slowest heats. And I was looking at the different times to see if she'd have a chance to do pretty well. And it said Jordan Bunch and then the letters N-T. N-T. Now, I'm new to this whole swimming thing. My kids have chosen sports that I never participated in. So I'm learning that myself. And so I asked this parent beside me, I'm like, N-T, what does that stand for? They're like, no time. And I was like, well, what do you mean? They don't have time for it? And they're like, no time. That means she's never swam this before for a time. Well, we weren't expecting very much out of Jordan at all. But she got into her blocks. This is the picture of it. And uh, she's getting ready. And when the gun sounds, she goes off like a bullet. And she beats all the kids in her heat by like three body lengths. Thank you. She has my athletic ability, so I appreciate the applause. <laughs> and uh, so finally, <laughs> she uh, she's like running to us after the meeting. She's like, Dad, I won first place. And I was like, Jordan, you won first place in one of the slowest heats. And she's like, what do you mean, Dad? And I'm like. There's 25 kids swimming. You are not in one of the fastest heats. But yeah, you came in first. She's like, well, I want my blue ribbon. And I said, well, honey, I, I don't think you're going to get a blue ribbon. But, you know, you, you won your heat. And she was just not having it. She's like, Dad, I want my blue ribbon. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? Go up there and beat up the guy? You know, like, hey, blue ribbon, you know. Well, eventually, Jordan's the kind of kid that she gets distracted pretty easily, um, just like her mother. And um, 
And so she gets distracted. She goes on with the rest of the meat. She doesn't think anything about it, but they start announcing then uh, who were, you know, some of the kids. And if you won or you placed, then you went on uh, one of the blocks. And to our amazement, the announcer said this. And in fourth place, in the girls' 25-yard backstroke, Jordan Bunch. And so we're like clapping for her. We're like, yes! But she gets up there and she gets her little ribbon. And she's not very happy. She's like, this is yellow. I came in first. First means blue. So she comes back and I try to explain her. Honey, there were 25 kids. You came in like fourth. That's awesome. You got to go up and stand on this platform. She's you know, just not having it whatsoever. Now we can look at Jordan. She's seven years old. And we can say, all right. I understand how a kid would be disappointed. I'd know how they would pout. But I read a very interesting study this week about Olympic athletes who win gold or silver or bronze medals. And they did a a study based upon their happiness and contentment on who was the most satisfied, who was the most happiest, who was the most content. And what they discovered was that, naturally, the gold medalists were the happiest. They won. But guess who was the second happiest? It wasn't the silver. It was the bronze. I mean, they came in second in the world. But their happiness and their contentment and their satisfaction level was much lower. And I found it so interesting. I mean, it's like the silver medalists, when they get up there, they're like, I was so close to the gold. I mean, how could I not, you know, have won that? Man, I just want to win gold. I mean, these Olympic athletes, folks, when they're training, they're not like, you know what? If I get silver, I'm good with that. No, when they're when they're training and they're ready, they want the gold. But. The person who wins the bronze, they're just like, dude, I'm happy to be up here. I mean, I was so close from not even being up here whatsoever. And so it was very interesting that those who actually came in second in the world, in whatever event it was, their happiness factor was much lower than the third place athlete. Now, psychologists tell us that this type of thinking is called counterfactual, counterfactual thinking. And this morning, we're going to look at a scripture that deals with this kind of thought process, counterfactual thinking. And it's a very challenging passage in the New Testament. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul, the guy who wrote over half the New Testament, considered one of uh, Jesus's um, most dominant followers, uh, writes to a guy by the name of Timothy. So he's writing this letter to his mentoree. He's the mentor, Paul is. And he writes to Timothy, and this is what he says. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in, the, in, the, in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share, 
In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And that's the big idea. If you don't get anything else today, I hope that what you'll do after reading this passage is that you will take hold of the life that is truly life. That you will take hold of a generous life, which is really the way that God intended us to live. Somehow, though, there is a very odd connection between what you do with your money and the kind of life that you experience. And so Paul says, take hold of the life that is truly life. What an inspiring phrase. Now, for the rest of our time, what I want us to look at is what I think most Americans live, the way most Americans live, and then we're going to contrast it with an alternative life that Paul gives to us in this passage. So how do most Americans live? Well, one movie puts it this way. We are an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. Now, this is a movie quote. But there's also a quote that Jesus gives to us in Matthew chapter 6. He gives this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most... uh, Memorable teaching that Jesus ever gave. And in chapter 6, he says this. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If you would, what I'd like you to do in verse 32, I'd like you to underline that phrase. For the pagans... Run after all these things. It's pretty apt description, probably, of the 21st century here in the United States. In fact, I think most Americans, most of us, live in a way in which we are running after all kinds of stuff. We just are running constantly after more and more stuff. We're just like, I want some more stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. You know, storage units were not even on the radar, folks, 50 years ago. But they're definitely on the radar now, right? Why? Because we have so much stuff that we can't keep our stuff in our house So we've created a billion-dollar industry to go put our stuff in. And the reason we do this is because marketers are telling us all the time what we are to eat, what we are to drink, and what we're to wear. My first recollection of ever giving in to marketers saying that I needed a certain thing in my life happened when I was in the seventh grade. I was getting ready for the seventh grade, and I pulled out my best shirt. And I put this shirt on, and it had a fox 
on the corner of it. And I walked in school and I thought I was the stuff, you know, because I had a fox, foxy bunch, you know. (laughs) And so the fox starts walking through uh, the halls of Justice Middle School. And pretty soon he starts noticing that all the cool kids didn't have a fox, but they had this, an alligator. And pretty soon, I started feeling less because I had a fox and not an alligator. And we know that the alligator is the company for what? Lacoste, Izod. So what I did was I got home that day and I retired the fox. And I never wore the fox the rest of the year. And then that fall, I started saving my money. My parents gave me some Christmas money. And I'll never forget, right after Christmas, I walked into Shady Hills Country Club in their uh, uh, clothing department. And I walked in and I bought myself a yellow Izod sweater. And I put that thing on after Christmas break. And I was like, look at this. Not a fox. I was so proud of that sweater that I only wore it a few times to school. And then I remember I put it away so that I could be able to wear it in the fall of 1984. Now, guess what happened in the spring and summer of 1984? I grew seven inches. Advertisers tell you, folks, that you've got to have this certain item to be happy. And you know they are targeting younger and younger ages all the time. I'm not a big cook in our house. My wife cooks. She's a great cook. But when I watch the girls, sometimes I have to cook. And I remember Jordan was around two years old. And uh, I had uh, made what I knew how to make, which was Campbell's chicken and noodle soup in the microwave. I took the can out, put it in there. I get ready to serve Jordan and she pushes it away and she says, Dad, I can't eat that because it doesn't have Dora on the can. (laughs) And I said, well, Dora died and you're going to die if you don't eat this. You know what I learned this week? Guess how much money advertisers use to socially manipulate our kids? 17 billion, not million, 17 billion dollars are spent every single year to socially manipulate you so that you go and you buy Dora on the can than something else. There's a book that I'd encourage any of you to read called The Story of Stuff. It's by an author named Annie Leonard. And she shares about this concept that before World War II, or right after World War II, advertisers and marketers and economists got together and they started talking openly about how they could get Americans to become obsessive 
consumers. And the outcome was, is that they would create some products that were more often based on essentially kind of two strategies. The first one is this, planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. And you might look at that and say, well, what's that mean? Well, it's, they thought after World War II, how do we get customers to buy the same product over and over and over again? Now, what manufacturers realize is that they would want to make sure that the product was obsolete as soon as possible, but not before the consumer actually said, that is the brand that I want. So whatever happens to it, I'll buy it again. In fact, in some of their manufacturing processes, they would learn how to develop the product up only into the point to where it would break so that you and I would go back out and purchase more of them. Do you realize that, folks? That in many, not all, but in many manufacturers, they actually put it within the plan that you get to the point where it will break so that you can buy the next thing. I didn't share this with the first celebration, but I'll share it with you guys. I, I have a trimmer for my goatee. All my gray hairs, I have to keep them, you know, looking good. And um, so I've noticed that it never lasts the year long. But we have a friend who loves to call places and tell them it didn't last a year, so you need to send it to me. And they promised me that they will do this each time I use this particular trimmer. I've gotten four new trimmers. But you know what it made me think? That wall, W-A-H-L, they have decided that the trimmer doesn't last more than a year, but the trimmer is so good that you will go back, Bunch, and you will buy it. And I said, no, I'm going to have my friend stay on the line for an hour because she likes to do it. And she does. Think about cell phones. How many of you really think in your mind, you know what, I'm going to keep my cell phone for five years. Nobody thinks. Oh, yeah, liar. Don't don't raise your hand. (laughs) Nobody thinks that, right? Nobody thinks they're going to keep their cell. It's like 18 months to two years, and something's going to happen. The kid's going to break it. You're going to break it. You're going to go swimming with it. Oh, like some of you have never done that. Am I the only one? Yeah. And uh, so, or you feel like you're going to be made fun of because you don't have an up-to-date phone. Now, the first church that I pastored, the average age was 72 years old, 72 years old. And I would walk in to visit with these people because it was all about house visits. And I'd walk in and I would sit down. I'd hear this. I'm like, what the heck is that? They had plastic like on all of their furniture. And I kept thinking to myself, why would they keep plastic on this? And people would tell me, they would say, this is the furniture we got when we were married. And we've kept it for 40 or 50 years. We knew on that day that we would keep it forever. And so we've tried to keep it nice. And I would sit there. I'm like, dude, you got more money than me. Like, get something. Give me the plastic, you know. But when these folks would buy their furniture, they just thought they would have it forever. They just grew up in a very different era. People my age, folks, and younger, none of us think that we're going to have objects for the rest of our life. 
It doesn't even enter our mind. Why? Because we want to upgrade, right? Whatever you have, it's not good enough to get an upgrade and buy and buy and buy more. So they created this idea of planned obsolescence. The second thing that they created was perceived obsolescence. This is this idea that things are not wearing out quick enough, so we need to tell customers that they are not in style anymore. Like a perfectly good product that's still in good condition, but you know what? It's just not trendy enough. So you need to buy something else. It's kind of like my illustration, right, of the the fox or the alligator. I have a feeling that they probably were made in the exact same warehouse. And you know what the last thing was? Let's put an alligator on this one. Let's put a fox on this one. That was it. Think about some other things. What about bell-bottom jeans? Remember in the 70s? Like, if you were cool in the 70s, I'm dating myself a little bit. I was born in 71. But I had talked to my wife about it because she remembered the 70s. So. so I said, hey, you remember the 70s? She's like, yeah, bell-bottom jeans. And remember John Travolta? is like, staying alive, staying alive. Ah, 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 staying. And he had bell-bottom jeans, right? And everybody, well, bell-bottom jeans. Then the 80s came, and people were like, bell-bottom jeans, they are not cool at all. They're horrible. And then the 90s, you know, you'd laugh at people if they wore bell-bottom jeans. But what happened in the 2000s? They're back! Like, if you would have just kept what you had in the 70s, folks, you'd still be in style. I have a couple relatives like that. You know, they wear the same thing, and eventually they'll be back in style again. What about those uh, rhinestone country-looking shirts with a button? In the 70s, my parents said, this is your dress shirt. And I was like, man, this is awesome. Then I remember making fun of Michael Swinford in the 80s because he wore a rhinestone button-down country shirt. And the 90s were the same way. But then in 2000, what happened? They came back. I'm in my office one day. Derek walks in with this button-down rhinestone. I'm like, dude, I used to wear that when I was eight. Like, get a life, dude. And you know what the funny thing was? My wife took me out to go shopping, and guess what I got? You know? (laughs) Rhinestone button-down shirts. Women, how about your shoes? One year, it's a wide heel, right? The next year, it's a narrow heel. The next year, it's a wide heel. The next year, it's a narrow heel. So, ladies, my synopsis is this. You only need two pairs of shoes. To be in all the time. Do you want the average American, how many, or the the average female American, how many shoes they buy in a year? 17. 17 shoes per year. And see, what happens is that each one of us, we get sucked into this idea of trendy thinking. And we get rid of perfectly good things because the advertisers tell us they're not cool anymore. And it's perceived 
obsolescence. The author of the book finally just kind of said that the, the cultural rhythm is reduced to this. That we work, that we watch, and that we spend. We work hard, we come home exhausted, we collapse in front of the TV, and then we learn about all of these products that we didn't even know before even existed, but now we absolutely have to have them. And then we go out and we spend our money on what the advertisers tell us to buy. And this leads to kind of the second thing of how I think Americans live, and it's this, that we live in a world in which consumption is not a part of life, it's the way of life. Consumption is not just a part of life, but it's the way of life. You know, I was thinking that we're coming up on uh, the anniversary of 9-11, the worst tragedy to ever happen on American soil. But I was thinking back that when this tragedy hit, what was the overlying message that our government gave to us? They could have said, you should pray, or let's have a time of grieving, or let's be hope-filled because what God's done in the past through this country. But do you remember what the overarching message was on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, all the other channels? Shop! Don't stop shopping! Because if you stop shopping, then our economy is really going to go down the drain. So just keep on shopping. And it's amazing to me that many of us are so exhausted. You're sitting there today. You're exhausted because you're running after things that people are telling you that you desperately need. I read a really interesting uh, story that in Brazil, uh, in the largest city in that country, they uh, decided in 2006 that the mayor took this huge uh, stance and he banned all outdoor advertising. And so even today, you won't see it. Banned all of it. Everything was either taken down or it was painted white. And there was a real struggle because advertisers said, well, you know what? We're not going to do as well because we don't have all of this. And they battled it big time. But they did a report recently to try to find out what did people think about this. And that they found that people were actually happier and lighter and more peaceful and more content. Because the visual noise was no longer there. Americans have a tendency to buy more and more and more stuff. And consumption has become a way of life. And so the question becomes, what's an alternative to that? What's the alternative lifestyle? Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. It says this. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. (coughs) 
Now, if you read that first uh, sentence there, or the first few words, command those who are rich. Most of you, whenever you think of someone who's rich, you never think of yourself, do you? In fact, you're always thinking about somebody else. Whenever that idea of rich comes in, you don't think of yourself as rich. You think of Joe as rich because he has a vacation home. He has a boat. You know, they own their own house, whatever. But those are the people that are rich. The U.S., folks, has 5% of the population. But we consume 30% of the resources. Think about that. And if the whole world consumed at that rate that we are, we would need three or four or five planets to be able to contain all the stuff that we have. If you own your own car, if you drove in a car today, regardless of what the car looks like, you are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. And it doesn't matter if it's a brand new car or it's a clunker. You are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. And you want 90% of the world just looking at you and saying, you're rich. Wow. Like you're really rich. I mean, I can't believe it. You've got a car. Over a billion people in our world don't have clean drinking water. They look at the United States and they're like, seriously? Like, you don't have to walk five to six miles with a jug to get clean water. And then you have to walk another five or six miles back so that you can have water just for that day? You mean you can go, you can stay in your house and just turn the tap? Seriously? You can do that? Wow, man, you guys are rich. Can you imagine that? They're like, you're living the dream. Like, you're really living the dream. Some experts uh, say that we could provide basic clean water, health and food for all of the poor in the world. All the poor in the world. For $20 billion. Guess how much Americans spent on ice cream last year? $20 billion. Folks, for the rest of the world, they look at you, they look at me, and they're like, you're rich. You're living the dream. Now, let me say this, that this teaching is not... To make us feel guilty. I want to be real clear about that. I mean, you didn't plan on what country you were going to be born in. You didn't plan on the fact that you would be born in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. You realize that, right? Like you're living in the wealthiest country the world has ever known. God did that. He planned for you to be born here. Look at the last part of verse 17. It says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God provided it to us. We should enjoy it. It's a gift from Him. 
In fact, everything that you possess, folks, is a gift from God. But this is what I often find with people, is that when they open their hands up and they say, okay, God, whatever you give me, and then they get it, then they get closed-fisted. And pretty soon they walk through their life and they're just closed-fisted. And to whom much has been given, much is required. And that if I've received it, it's all His anyways. My house, my car, my furniture, my apartment, my computer, my cell phone, whatever it is that I have, God, it's yours anyway. So whatever you want me to do with it, I'm open to it. Now, God wants you to enjoy these things, but remember 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see, folks, it's okay for you to enjoy the things that God has provided. But there's a clear warning. Don't put your hope in money, or in stuff. Because when you do that, you become a closed-fisted person. And God intended for you to be open-handed. I had uh, I officiated at two funerals this week. And as I talked with both of the families about their loved one, who I didn't know, neither of them... In the last days, did the loved one say something like this? I just wish I would have had a bigger house. Or, you know, the biggest regret in my life is that we didn't have a brand new car. Or, I just wish I would have had more stylish clothes that I could wear. You see, folks, God understands the deepest cravings in your heart. And he's trying to save us from giving our lives to things that just don't matter. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to save you from giving your life to things that don't matter. So what should we do? Well, the next verse gives us some direction. Verse 18, it says this. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share So there's a couple of commands that Paul gives to this young Timothy. He says the first thing is we need to do good deeds. We need to do good deeds. When you walked in today in your program, you should have received a card that looks like this. If you could pull that out real quick, uh, just pull it out of your program. If you did not get one, just raise your hand and uh, one of our uh, greeters will get one for you. But pull this out for a second. Now, if I would have said, this card is a free gift certificate for $100, all of you have been like, whoa. Okay, pull this out. And if you remember, since the very early days of the jar, we've always challenged people to go and be generous, to do random acts of kindness, to show God's love. And a few weeks ago, I challenged some of you to do that. And a friend of ours by the name of Casey uh, took me up on that challenge. She was at a restaurant, and she was getting ready to pay for her meal when she looked behind herself, and she saw a grandpa and a grandson behind her. 
And the uh, grandson um, had no hair. And Casey's a nurse, and she could tell that he was kind of pale looking and that more than likely he'd had cancer and was going through some type of chemo. So Casey got out of line and went back to them and started talking to them. Now, what you need to know about my friend Casey is that she's a very shy person. I mean, sometimes I say hi to her and she doesn't even say hi. You know what I mean? She's just very, very shy. But she wanted to show God's love in a practical way. And so what she did was she left her comfort zone and she walked a few steps over into the zone of the unknown and began a conversation with this grandfather. The grandpa shared that his, son, his grandson did have cancer. He had recently gone through some chemo treatments and things were going well. And Casey then stepped out in faith. And she said, could I have your bill? I would really like to pay for your dinner. And the man looked at her and said, no. Now, at that point, she's like, Bunch, you told me to do this. And I thought people were going to like have open arms like, oh, my goodness, you want to do that? Thank you so much. I love all your church and car. Whoa, I'm going to do everything. Thank you. He just said one word. No. So she was a little bit more persistent. And she's like, no, please, sir. I really want to purchase your meal tonight. Please give me your bill. I want to pay for your dinner. And he said, well, I can't have you pay for it because it's $180. And she's like. Oh, it wasn't just the two of them. It was like the whole family was there. And at that point, she was really thinking, wait till I get that bunch. A hundred and eighty bucks. And then this was the very first question this guy asked her. Are you a Christian? And she said, yeah, I am. And she said, I'm the type of Christian that will pay $180 for your family's meal. And the guy looked at her and said, No. <laughs> I talked with Casey last week and she said, You know, I, I really felt kind of embarrassed. I felt rejected because I stepped out and it didn't kind of end up the way that I thought it would. But you know, Chris, I knew I was doing the right thing. I knew I was doing the thing that Jesus would do if he were here. Well, Casey stepped out in faith. And even though she got rejected, got a no, she stepped out. My question is, what about you? I want to give you some time right now to answer this question. That question that's coming back soon. Uh, What good deed will I do this week? So think about that. What good deed will you do this week? It doesn't have to be money. It could be multiple things that you could do. You could take a co-worker out to eat, on and on and on. 
So I want you to take some time right now, pull out your program and write down what's the good deed that you're going to do this week. So we'll give you some time right now to do that. So you'll be happy when you write this down. So We've learned something about marketers and advertisers that if we tell you you're going to be happy, now all of a sudden you'll start writing down some D, you know. So I hope you will. Now, for some of you, you're introverts and you're like, I didn't have enough time to process how we got from the parking lot to here right now. I'm just trying to stay up. So what I'm saying, folks, don't just throw your program away today. If you didn't get one, stop by. We've got some extras. Pick one up. But what is the good deed that you're going to do this week? Because this is the thing, folks. People don't always remember what they're told about God's love, but they never forget when they've experienced God's love. Let me say that again. People don't always remember what they're told about God's love, but they never forget when they've experienced it. And I have a feeling that the grandpa and the grandson will never forget the day that Casey stepped out of line to go and try to pay for their dinner. Well, the second command says this in the verse. It says, be generous and willing to share. To be generous and willing to share. You know, we've been talking about finances the last uh, three weeks. And uh, for some of you, you're like, oh, man, I'm glad today's the last one. Um, But I honestly hope that you've been convicted. Because you know what? When I stand up here, folks, I don't stand up here just to spew a whole bunch of stuff. Long before I ever get to this point, I have had to work this out in my own life. And I have been so convicted by this particular series. And I shared a little bit last week that uh, there was a a woman who was a widow and uh, she was sick. And uh, I felt a prompting that I should go and visit her, even though I didn't need to because someone on our pastoral care team would have. And I went and I was with them and... Uh, she died, and this week, on Tuesday, the family asked me to do the funeral. And I didn't know her, and so the family was so grateful when I said, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, so they were very grateful, thankful, and then they said, we want to give to you a gift, and you have to receive it uh, for doing the funeral, because we're so grateful uh, for you to do that. Well, the night before the funeral, on Monday night, I was praying, and uh, I just had one of those moments where I was like, God, I am surrendering everything to you. Everything that I know, I'm giving to you, including my possessions right now. And so, God, if you want to take some of my possessions and you want to give it to somebody else, I just want you to know that I'm open and I'm receptive to it. And so I just kind of sat there for a second, and I, as best as I could, it wasn't an audible voice. But just in my spirit, I sensed that God was telling me 
that I needed to take whatever the amount of money that I got for the funeral and that I needed to give it to someone in need. It didn't say who it was, so I only had about half the clarity. All I knew was I was supposed to take this gift and to give it to someone in need. And so I went ahead and I did the funeral and they, the funeral director came up and said, hey, the family really wants you to receive this. And I said, okay. And I took it. I said, I'm humbled by it. I got in the car. I started driving away. I stopped at a stoplight and I opened it up to see what it was. It was twice the amount that I usually get for funerals. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, God. Like, seriously? Twice the amount. So I take it and I go inside the house and I tell Jennifer, I said, hey, you know, this is the prompting. This is what happened. This is what I'm thinking. And she's like, well, I guess you're not taking me out tonight, are you? You know, and not really. Uh, she said, well, Chris, I think you need to do whatever you need to do. Now, again, folks, I only had clarity on the fact that I was supposed to take this amount of money and to give it to someone in need. But I didn't know who that person was. Well, you know, Facebook can solve a lot of problems, right? I mean, it creates a lot of problems, but it can solve a lot of problems. So I'm looking at Facebook uh, one day this week. I don't remember which day. And I noticed there was a post from a young guy in our church who's working two jobs. He's going to college and he's doing his best to make decisions that honor God. And in the middle of that, He had a post that read this way. It's only the second week of class and I've already had my bike stolen. What luck. And immediately I felt like God was saying, that's the person. I'm like, dude, he thinks he's got bad luck. I'm going to give him some good luck. I'm going to give him some good luck. Yeah. (laughs) So I call him up on the phone. I said, hey, you know, this is what happened. And I want to give this to you. And, uh, you know, whatever you decide to do with it's fine. You know, maybe get a bike or whatever, but you just, you know, take it. He said, well, actually, that wasn't even my bike. It was my brother's bike. And I'm like, yes, I'm out of it. You know what I mean? I'm pulling it back, you know. Honey, we are going out to dinner tonight. And, I mean, it's domo time, you know. Or what's the new one? I don't know. Some Japanese steak restaurant, whatever. Um, what is it called? Sorry. Fuji, Fuji, <laughs> that'd be something. So I was like, hey, we'll do and, and then I just felt this sense in my spirit that regardless, I was to give it away. And so on Friday, I go to the bank, I cash in the check, I meet this student at Ball State, and I give it to him. And he was so thankful and he was so grateful. And then he said this. He said, I hope one day that I can have that kind of generosity with somebody else. And you know, folks, I walked away from that day and I was like, yes. You know what I mean? No, don't clap for me. You can clap for God if you want. That's fine. But I was like, yes. Like God, through his spirit, opened me up. And I didn't have a closed fist. I had open hands. And he took it and he impacted a life. 
And folks, God may not be asking you to give up a check. He might not be asking you to give any money whatsoever. But I want to ask you today, who is God asking you to be generous to? I mean, who is he asking you to be willing to give something to? So take a couple minutes, seconds, and write down with a happy spirit, who is God asking me to be generous or to share something with? Now, again, if you didn't get a name, you don't get a sense, just don't go through the week, though, without taking some time and saying, God, what good deed do you want me to do this week? And who is it, God, that you're asking me to be generous with? Might be financially, may not be, whatever it is. You know what? One of the biggest things, though, that prevents us from having a spirit of generosity, it's the fact that for so many of us, folks, we are in eyeballs up in debt. You're in debt. In fact, statistics tell us that half of all Americans, almost half of all Americans, 43% of all Americans, you actually spend more than you make. And that the average credit card debt for the household in the United States is $15,000. And folks, let me just say this, that for some of you, you're in a lot of debt right now. But you don't have to stay that way. You don't. You just need to get a plan. And so I want to encourage you to get a plan. Call the church office. We'll help you to find a plan. And maybe for some of you, you just need to bite the bullet and go on Dave Ramsey's website, which we teach here once a year, and that you would go on his website of financial piece, you'd click on find a class, and there are two that are happening within our area, one in Albany and one in Anderson, and you could do that. You could. Get out of debt. And why do you want to get out of debt? Not only so you feel freedom, so you're not so overwhelmed, but secondly, so that you can be generous with others. Now, let me be clear, folks. There's nothing wrong with saving and having a a wealth strategy, building up your wealth. But just always remember this, that every time that God blessed, blessed his people with wealth, it was so that they would bless other people. In fact, in Scripture, folks, every time that he blesses a people group, It was always so that they would take that and they would bless other people. And I pray that that would be your heart, to be open-handed to bless. Last verse. 
verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, there is a uh, theology that's out there called prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel. And it basically says that if you give money to God or to some work of God, that God is going to bless you with more money. And sometimes you'll see TV preachers, they'll stand up and they'll say, if you give this small gift to this ministry, then we will give, you will be blessed by God with even more money to receive it. But folks, that's not what Timothy is saying in this passage. God is actually inviting us to something that is much deeper, something far more meaningful. Because if God is the author of life, which he is, and he wants to give us a secret of life, the secret is how do we stop being closed-fisted and we're open-handed and we're generous with the people around us? But I'm telling you, folks, to live that kind of life, it's a hard thing to do, especially in our culture. Because 500 times a day, advertisers are telling you, this is what you should eat. This is what you should drink. This is what you should wear. They remind us all the time that what you have is not enough. You desperately need something more. And how great your life would be if you had it. But maybe what we should do is be counterculture and say, you know, it's not about what I get that defines my life and gives me value, but it's what I give that does. You know, I uh, receive a salary from the church every two weeks, and I'm so grateful for it. And every time that my wife and I sit down to write our tithes and offerings. When we do that, what we think about are the single moms and the people who struggle with some poverty issues that we're able to invest in their lives. We think of the orphan children in Kenya that we have literally saved over a dozen lives of kids because... We've been able, as a church, to be generous and to care for them. We think about the number of marriages that have been put back together because of our small group ministries and some other things where people were able to use resources for that to happen. And we think of the dozens and dozens of lives because of Celebrate Recovery that have overcome their hurts, habits, and hang-ups and their living in freedom and in new life. And we think about all the children that are in Jar Kids today or in Impact that meets on Sunday nights and their lives are being changed and they're being encouraged and loved and cared for to let them know that they're a child of God. And when Jennifer and I think about these things, we're like, we get a part of that? Like, we get to be a part of that. And we think to ourselves, God, what a blessing it is. For us to be able to give. And folks, that's the life that is truly life. Now last week was a great week in the life of our church. We baptized 13 people at Prairie Creek. Yeah, that's a good thing to clap for. 
And these people went into the baptismal waters. I wish we could show tons of pictures of them. Um, but their face, when they came out of it, and I remember one particular woman, she came out and she's like, yes, you know, like she was finally trusting her one and only life in Christ. Well, this week, though, I found a cartoon about baptism and here it is. And you know what I found? Is that it's not too hard for people to be baptized in water. But when it comes to trusting God with our finances, a lot of times we're like this guy. Just not quite sure. So as we end our series, In God We Trust, it's my hope and it's my prayer that from week one you would get a plan. You'd get a giving plan, that you'd be a percentage giver, whether it's 2%, 5%, 10%, whatever, but you become a percentage giver. And secondly, that you care for those who are in need, the widow, the orphan. And that rather than getting sucked into our consumer world, you'd say enough is enough. And that you would be people who are not tight-fisted, but you would be open-handed. And the reason I want you for that, folks, and it is, it's my hope and prayer that you'll do this. It's because a generous life is truly life. Let's stand for closing prayer. I invite our prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, they'd love to pray with you. So um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for being such a generous God to us. Thank you for your scripture that challenges us to be more generous with the gifts that you've given. God, thank you for this series. I pray that it would be a series, God, that would really help people to know how to become percentage givers, to know how to give of their life so that we might truly become a church that outrageously is generous with our community. Help us, Lord, to take hold of life that is truly life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new, please stop by Guest Connections. We have a free gift for you. Otherwise, have a great week. Know you're loved in this place.